Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Ettini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode, and today we are. I'm thrilled to to have here with us a sustainability expert, a change maker. She has been at the top leadership, working with the, the most and leading organization. So I'm very pleased to welcome Alice Ruaweza. Alice, a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, pleasure to meet you too. Thank you very much for having me, Samuel. And Alice. You have done wonderful. Now you are with WWF, but you have worked with UNDP, we had worked with UNFC, UN, and all the other change makers. But usually, as we start, we want to know who is Alice? What is your sustainability journey? It's a very long journey to start with who is Alice. So I was born in Uganda. I was born to a father who was head of national parks. So he was in charge of all protected areas in Uganda. And that gave me a very, very fast taste of the environment and wildlife and why they are important to us. And then my mother was a community leader. From her, I got the taste of why people must be at the heart of the work that we do, whether, it, whether we are trying to protect the environment. We need to understand that people sit at the center of everything that we do. So I grew up with uh, both parents, one an advocate for wildlife, fauna and flora, and another one, an advocate for people. So I was already right in the middle of the um, that intersection between people and nature, which is very much also the mission and vision of WWF where I work, which is to create a world where people and nature live in harmony. So my journey started early. Interestingly, I did not really have out my career originally in uh, biology and science. I actually started out as a teacher. I taught English language and literature. Because I, at the time when I was graduating in Uganda, we didn't have a lot of jobs just available. So one of the easiest jobs to get actually was to be a teacher because it is one profession that is always looking for people. And very rewarding profession, I have to say. I did that for a while. And then my, my parents said, but why don't you go and study? Um, we don't think that teaching is valuable, but it's not going to be the profession that gets you where you think. So why don't you go and study something like economics, for example? And at the time, you know, you think economics, finance, economy, it's it's the big, it's the big uh, subject. So I went and I studied economics. Luckily, I got a scholarship. I went to the United States. I worked there. I worked in telecoms in the United States. I stayed there for almost nine years, actually, working in telecoms. And then in 2003, I decided I wanted to come back home and uh, work. And my, my father passed away. And I really thought, felt like leaving the U.S. was too far. I remember the journey that I took to travel from the U.S. to come for his burial. I just felt like I didn't want to do that anymore. So, And I was also coming to the end of what I had, an H-1B visa in the U.S. It was coming to an end. So it was also a good time for me to come back home. And the job that I got to come back home was to work in environment, to work with the National Environment Management Authority to support the World Bank at the time that was funding the authority to mainstream environment into policies and plans of all sectors. That was an important journey for me because I was coming in as an economist and they were very interested in, in that because they felt like environment was being recognized only as something that the Environment Authority was responsible for. But the World Bank really wanted, how do we mainstream this? How do we get the Ministry of Finance to care about environment? How do we get the Ministry of Education or the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Agriculture? 
So they hired me to come in and help them really think about that. And I remember, you know, going through that and realizing that one of the biggest challenges why we were, we're not making a lot of headway was because environment was seen as a command and control. Get out of the wetland, get out of the forest. You're not supposed to do this. You have to get an environmental impact assessment before you do that. It was being seen as a police and nobody was internalizing it as valuable or that nature is the foundation of, of what we do. Everybody was thinking it's a police, police. So I said, we need to change this. Number one, we need to create incentives. With my economist, economist mind, I was like, we need to create incentives for people to want to care about the environment or to want to make part of it. And so I started to think and I found out something called payments for environmental services. You probably have heard about that. There are organizations out there that actually pay if there's an that create an incentive for someone to keep forests standing. Uh, and that is probably carbon payments. And that was the first time I started to really understand about how the carbon payments work and carbon the carbon market. And I, I introduced that. I started to introduce that thinking into the organization where I was working. And yeah, and I started to understand how environment and economics can come together. So I was able to bring my skills as an economist into my work as an as into my environment work. Then from then on, that work was funded by UNDP. The UN said, oh, we really wanted you to come and work for us. I went to work for the UN. In the UN, really, it was mainly environmental finance. So I was really continuing environmental finance. And it was about, you know, supporting countries to access resources for their development plan, especially leveraging environmental finance for development. And um, it was mostly the GEF, the Global Environment Facility, the Green Climate Fund. I supported, well, I worked with 44 countries in Africa to access uh, those resources. And also not only to access them from there, but also to blend and combine those resources with their own resources to really, really build a very successful environmental finance program. After that, I went to Conservation International and there my focus was mostly science policy interface. So while I knew a lot about policy working in the UN, the question there was, I was trying, my, my job was trying to answer is, can better data lead to better decision making? If we can provide the best science in the world, will decision makers use the best science to guide their decisions? Tricky question, not always easy because policy is politics, right? Politics is, doesn't, is not always following science. But it was an interesting one. I learned, I learned a lot from that. I learned about, you know, being able to think about the policy making process. What is the timing of that process? Like, when is the best time for you to give information to policymakers? And what kind of information do they need? Do they need scientific information? Or, and I found out most of the time they're interested in information that is about their own area, where, where they live. They're not interested in big global data. They're interested in about, you know, how about my river that is drying across <laughs> And then uh, I went to, and then I came to WWF to to lead the Africa program, which has been really very was also a very exciting journey. So yes, it's been a long, very zigzaggy journey. I always tell people who ask me about my journey and the trick, and I'm like, there is no trick. It's about being there, taking the available opportunity that comes in front of you, taking it and really making it work. And and I think always having people at the center, because whatever we do, if the people do not see the value in it or if it's not or if it doesn't make sense to them it will never be successful so for me you always have to have people at the center of the work that you do it's an incredibly vast experience and i really like what you said the end it's also for the work that i'm doing the small projects if people are not there if you cannot instill that ownership and they embrace it it is very difficult to have it succeed and i want to 
to, to expand a bit with your extensive experience, you know, you said all Africa, all now international work. So which are the most pressing issues that we have? And also the opportunity challenges, opportunities for the international development space and the sustainability. And especially how we can address them, I mean, through collaboration. I mean, lots of pressing issues. I mentioned earlier the need to put people at the center. I mean, we could start with the big issues. Climate change is probably one of the biggest issues that mankind has ever faced. But even on that one, when you look at it, it's all about the impacts that people are feeling from climate change, right? Whether it's poverty, it's again the people, what people, whether it's nature loss, is what does nature loss mean for my the day-to-day life of people? How are they affected when we lose nature, when the water dries? So the, the issues to me are, are those. Then of course, there's the issues around inequality. Inequality is a big issue because not everybody's at the same level. Not everybody's feeling the pinch of climate change the same way. Some people are worse off than others. And so therefore, being able to address more the people that are struggling, the people that are the last mile who don't always, who get forgotten, who are not always remembered. And and so then, of course, you, so it's climate change, it's natural loss, it's inequality, but it's pollution. You have issues around pollution as well. Economic issues. Now, of course, we are in a, we are at a time when we're dealing with what they call polycrisis, right? We have the COVID-19 recovery, which is still not where it needs to be. By the way, I have two friends of mine got COVID two weeks ago and when everybody was thinking it was done. So COVID is not gone completely, but I think it's already disappearing from people's minds. And I think we need to think about, you know, pandemic preparedness. When is the next pandemic going to come from? Uh, inflation, of course. I mean, if you're poor and the prices have gone high, the, the, U, the, the war, the Ukraine war, um, Ukraine-Russia war has meant increase in food prices. I was shocked when the first, the war first started. I I remember thinking, hey, it's, it's it's really it's terrible, but it felt like Russia was very far from me until I found out that 35 countries in Africa were dependent on wheat from Ukraine. I was it was it was such a revelation, uh, and it, it shows that the globalization of the world. But the way that it also shows how interlinked we are, and why we need to collaborate, as you said at the, at the end, because uh, you may think that because you sit where I sit in Africa, that something happening in Russia is not necessarily important to me, of course, but that's usually what the first thing you think, it's, it doesn't concern me, but it actually concerns us because it's hit us, it's hit us, the energy prices, the, the food prices as well. So the importance of collaboration to me is very key. And one of the, one insight that I gained from my work at WWF and from developing our Africa strategy was the need for an engaged society. That the work that we do as conservationists is not going to be solved by conservationists. The challenges we face do not always need conservation solutions. The solutions actually most of the time lie outside of conservation. And while we have, we have been so good at the conservation issues, at the protected areas, at wildlife conservation, at freshwater conservation, at finance, we've done amazing work but I feel like the really transformative way we're going to get this and to, is, is to get everybody involved. We call it making nature everyone's business. That is the title of the WF Africa strategy. And it came from my insights I received when I was consulting for the strategy. And people said to me two things, two things. They said, one, we, the governments want to grow. They want to become middle-income countries. They want jobs. They do not think that conservation is going to deliver that. So the first, the first realization was the fact that conservation is not seen as a solution to where government's biggest aspirations, and we needed to think about that. If the government's aspiration is economic growth, 
the government's aspiration is to become a, a middle-income country, to create jobs for their people. We need to show that nature can coexist, conservation of nature can coexist with that goal. The second insight I received from them was that conservation is only the business of WWF and Conservation International and everybody else. They did not see nature conservation as their issue. And I said to myself, okay, we are not going to succeed if nature conservation is only seen as a WWF issue, a small concept, because we're very small. We, know eight billion, we need 8 billion people across the world saying, we want to do this. This is important to us. We see the value of that. I think climate change has gained a little bit of that. You know, you have a lot more people, a lot more people interested in Fridays for the future. And I think it's how do we get uh, the nature conservation agenda to that level? Because the climate agenda is, is visible because people can see it. They can see that the rains don't come when they need them. They can see that the crops and the yields are not there. They can feel it. They can see it. They can see the drought. They can see the floods, you know. So I think that the, one of the biggest challenges we face as a nature conservation agency is to make nature be also visible to people as an important thing for them. As, and also, I want to be out of the job so that someone else, someone in your community in Nakuru is shouting the message that nature is my business. I want to do that. That's when I will see the, the difference. But if I'm the one who is shouting that message, I can't reach everywhere. I need to make sure that I have more and more people in this agenda more people under the tent. And thank you so much, Alice. You know, I was actually even taking notes because your insight uh, like a lesson for practitioners and for people that every day work there. And your sentence is like, make nature everybody business. It's really a very strong one. I want to ask, since you mentioned that was at the core and the center of your Africa strategy when you, you were uh, the Africa Regional Director for WWF. So can you share some impact stories that how you have embedded that and some outcomes that come from this and how you have tried to really foster this message and make a difference. There's lots of great stories and especially the stories in the countries where we work. I, I mean, I would visit all our countries and I think some of the excellent stories I've liked, the ones that bring people and nature are the ones that are found in, in, in our projects. For example, in Central Africa Republic. It's a country that has been ravaged by war. It's a small country. But our work there intersects with where people people live, in the indigenous people live. And we have done a lot of work around making sure, understanding that in order to convert these people to see our work in conserving the gorillas, for example, or in, in that space, seeing that as part of their business is making sure that they see the value. So addressing their issues such as education. We have health centers. We have schools, we have radio programs. We have invested a lot in community development initiatives because those community development initiatives are the ones that show show that the people that we, who are living in these communities why the work that we're conserving gorillas is also important. So for me, it really is about understanding the, the place where you work, understanding what the needs are, and being able to embed your nature conservation work into the needs of the people and creating this, that's the collaboration you're talking about. You're creating an ecosystem where their needs and your work intersect and they become one and they become, they're interested in your work and you are interested in their, in their development. And that is really the core of conservation, not like the traditional fortress 
And as you say, the policing at the beginning you have discussed, but really being together and showing the na the nature and what. And I want to, you you have put something interesting uh, in your description of your sustainability journey about your background in finance and how this helped you, you know, develop some innovative approach. Can you explain us a bit more about this approach and how you have used finance and your background to support the sustainable investments and you know, transforming the way conservation was done and is done. You mentioned the word fortress there, and I wanted to definitely make sure that I correct that, because uh, uh, that, there is always this conversation about fortress, and this is, not, this is of course not fortress conservation. Uh, when we talk about making sure that you are communities, the people that live in that area are fully embedded in the, in the design of the solutions of the place. The people who live where nature is are the ones engaged in designing the solutions and engaged in benefiting from the solutions is important. Finance, yeah, finance is important. Finance drives everything. And I gave you the example that when I was working for the National Environment Management Authority, I realized that um, that's the command and control, which is what they call the get out of the wetlands, get out of the forest, uh, wasn't really working. And that we needed to think about how do you create incentives so that if someone is, go is, is going to keep the forest standing or trees standing, they are going to benefit from it. And at the time, that was at the beginning of the carbon market, it was very interesting to see. Those are some of the best examples that I saw. Of course, the carbon market has been around. It has grown and there's a lot of noise around it right now in terms of integrity and all of that. But back then, what I liked, this there was a program. It was called a Plan Vivo program. You may have heard of Plan Vivo. This was smallholder carbon where you worked with individual people who had a hectare or a couple of hectares of land. And they would set aside a small portion of that land for tree planting. And they would benefit from that and get money from the carbon markets, from the voluntary carbon market. This was so new. This was rural people, people in rural. That program, of course, has continued now. It's called Trees for Global Benefits. At the time, it was small, just a few farmers, and it has started expanding. This is not huge carbon, but this is small. This is small holder, small, or either small landowners, individual landowners who created, who could create space, a little space in their land and, and get paid for it. Another exciting one that I was then I became a part of later was the one where we needed to create a corridor for chimpanzees. And the corridor in Uganda, where I was working at the time, almost 70% of forest was on private land. And so for you to be able, you, you can't, you couldn't, as a government, say, I'm going to force a corridor. You needed to work with individual landowners to keep their forest standing and create a corridor. And again, Another one which was developed and people were compensated for that. There's, and there's, now there are so many examples like this across Africa in particular and of course across the world. And I think to me, combining the economic and the nature conservation is important because the economics does move the world. Even right now, as we are talking globally, we're talking about finance. Last week, we were at the World Bank spring meeting. We're talking about how do we reform the multilateral development banks so that they can provide money. Money can flow better to the poor to the last mile. At the end of the day, finance is important and sustainable finance is important. And being able to, first and foremost, people can access it. It needs to be accessible to those who need it most in an easier way, at a lower interest for sure. But also it must reach the last mile and it must show impact on the ground. It's really an important insight and, and really how, you know, finance and the role of finance that we discuss in ISO and other episodes can really unlock the transformation, especially of rural areas. And talking about rural areas, one of the 
figures there, it's the African women. We discuss, we have a lot, there is a lot of movement, the blog posts, the discussions, but you are one of them and you have raised from being, you know, born in Uganda from with parents that already had social and environmental background and, and work. You have raised from humble teacher, we can say now, to award the leader. What can you say, how we can help and support gender equality, youth empowerment in this, uh, in, especially in our context, in our everyday context in, uh, for us? Well, I grew up seeing very powerful women. My mother, of course, great, as a great role model in that respect. And when I look back at that example of uh, how I was growing up, of course, I had a father who was also very powerful, and my mother. But what was interesting at the time is, is how women are able to lead from behind. Women are very strong leaders, but they don't have to be in your face shouting and saying, I'm the leader, I'm the leader. Some cultures actually lend themselves to women leading from behind. And that's extremely important. I have several examples of, of women saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm doing my thing. And uh, I don't mind that someone else is getting credit, but I'm really the engine. They're really the engine. So that's why the women are the engine behind what you see. You may not see it, but they are the engine. And that's really very powerful. But also, I mean, women are the breadwinners. They are the ones that put food on the table. They are the ones that know they are Mother Earth. And that name is synonymous with the fact that they have a very strong relationship with natural resources because they are the ones that put food on their table. They are the ones that suffer when you don't have food and have to go distances to look for water and to look for food. They have an intimate knowledge and an intimate relationship with natural resources. And therefore, they have to be at the table and to shape the decisions and discussions around natural resources. And I remember when I was, um, years ago, I was in the field doing some work, and I think it was in Ethiopia, and I was interviewing, I was trying to understand what is the meaning of resilience. And in this particular community where I was, when I, when I would go to this meeting and I would ask, um, most of the time it was the men who would be talking, and I got an insight from someone who said, no, 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 you know, when you interview the men, also interview the women and see if you get similar insights. And it was, lo and behold, interesting. So for the men, when I would say, what was the meaning of resilience? They said, we want markets, markets for our livelihood. We want to make sure we have uh, uh, money. We want to make sure we, we have savings and money and markets and a lot more, and, you know, a lot more cattle. But the women would say, we want water. We want, you to we want the conflict from the neighbors reduced so that we can work together. Oh, we want our children to go to school, our girls to go to school. So in the end, I had to come up with a project that combined both. So resilience was not just the money for the markets and everything, but from the women's perspective as well. It was water, it was the reduction of conflict and having that insight. So to me, women need to be at the table. I'm not saying men shouldn't. Men should because men are also important and men are good champions of women. You should remember that. In societies where there's better gender equality, there are societies where men also support gender equality. So being able to use men also to support this is important because you don't want it to be a, a men against women. No, you want to, it, it to be a place where people recognize that. And um, I was born in a family of, of uh, uh, seven girls. So I grew, so my father was a big, I, if I would call him a feminist, he understood the importance of women and he created, created us because we had girls. We were, we were all girls. But anyway, uh, back to the point where I feel that women uh, and women have to be at the table. Men have to be championing women as well. But we also have to understand cultures, the nuance of cultures, where women are, it is not always about 
putting women forward. Some women are comfortable leading from behind. And I think it's important to understand that. Well, I'll tell you one story about a, a program that was created for women to give women money because there was this understanding that women are not receiving. But the, to the frustration of the project organizers, the women would get the money and give it to the men. They'd say, well, imagine, we've created this program. and But the thing is, you have to understand, that is the culture. That was their culture. It wasn't about them having the money and the men suffering. No, it is about you understanding that when you create this program, there they are some culture, some imperatives as well that you have to follow. And you have to maintain harmony as well. So yes, gender equality important, women's voices at the table, rules and regulations that recognize women that are more sensitive, inclusion. When do you hold meetings? Do you hold meetings in the evening when the woman has to cook? Or do you put the meetings at the time when they can actually come and attend? So you have to be very aware of things, of things like that. It's I think there's good work going, but we still have a lot more work to do. In fact, recently I, I spoke at a G20 event in the India is the G20 president, and we had a women and biodiversity, and we're writing a paper now to be put into the G20, which is great because the G20 agenda is going to have something on women. And I think that's fabulous. And it's really important. I can see also from my more uh, grassroots experience here, I really see those important issues. And especially having come from outside and now been around more than 20 years around, that you can really understand and how you really need to be part of the culture, understand how you to frame the work. And this is really wonderful. You said that sometimes they are overlooked or people they don't understand. And now you see the frustration or maybe oh, the, the problem, but it's really hindering the success. And I want to ask now a question. I mean, many of the people that listen to us, maybe they are young professional people, managers, people they are now in organization, which are, since you have such a big uh, experience, I mean, from all over the world, I want to ask you how we can achieve impactful collaboration, which advice you can give you know, uh, to create some partnership and what, what they can do also within their organizations to help. The young people are the future. I think they are the most powerful thing we have going at the moment, especially for us who live in Africa, where 70% of the population is below the age of 22. I believe the figure is close to 22. So that is the future. That is the future that we have. And to me, what they, those young people should do is they need to be bold. They need to be out there and learning and learning about what's happening and pushing themselves forward and, and questioning. You know, when we talk about an engaged society, why we want to make nature everyone's business. It's also about making sure that these people, 8 billion citizens that we have across the world, can hold their governments accountable, commitments they have made. You know, in December, many governments committed to this global biodiversity framework. So I want the young people to go and, to, and ask their governments, you've committed to this global biodiversity framework. What is it are you going to do? Because they are voters. These young people are also voters. They have voting members, so they have power in pushing their governments and holding their governments accountable in saying you committed to conserving biodiversity. Uh, what, is, what are you going to do for that? You've committed to climate, you know, reducing climate change. What are you doing? Uh, I'd like to see the, 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 the young people out there in their parliamentarians pushing and so and they and by to be able to do that, they need to push themselves to understand what the issues are. And we've seen some very good good um, examples of you know young people even in Africa and others coming through and really being the Fridays for the future, climate activists, biodiversity activists, youth activists, 
But you know that's important. Of course, we need to also make sure that the youth are we finding them some jobs. You know, youth employment, youth unemployment is a big issue. Migration has been coming through. I think almost like the, we talked about women, we need to make sure the youth are at the table. We need to make sure they are being asked for their views. We need to make sure that the rule, the laws and policies that we put in are also we, that way. We, we are they include the youth and that they they are, they are friendly to youth issues as well. And thank you so much, Alice. It's really crucial because those are the generations of the future and really the one that will inherit the art. So, and actually, and, and I was going to say, these youth are not us. You know, when I have my children are 15 and 12 and already they understand big issues, they will be asking me things like, do you know how many elephants are being pushed every day? Do you know, they, 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 they are already asking me these questions. And uh, you can see that these youth are more enlightened now. You know, they are more enlightened. They are growing up in an environment where they're more enlightened, but also in an environment where they have a stake because the actions we do today are going to affect their world tomorrow. And so therefore what they're saying is stop taking away our future. What you're doing today is affecting where we're going to live. You, in 20 years from now, you, you may be gone, but we are going to be in this world. And therefore we have a stake in how the world is going to look like in 20 years from now. And we want to start working now into that. And that's also important. Yeah, it's such important. And sometimes we forget that because the younger generation sometimes they don't have voice, but now they are raising and we need to consider them. And I want really to go that step toward the future. You sit at many important tables. You mentioned the G20 and other forums. So from your observatory, which are, you know, the, the progress? How are you really making progress and how do you see the future in the next five, 10 years? Are we making really the steps that are necessary for the sustainable development and conservation? I'm glad you're asking that question because that is a question that's on my mind. You know, I this is it's a hundred days for in my new role, and I was talking to the, yesterday to my my communications person that I'm I'm trying to write a blog of a hundred days and what are my reflections for those hundred days? And one of those reflections I came out with up with is is the importance of the regional voices, the importance of the national and regional voices, because we have a very big global agenda. Uh, the agenda is global, it is shaped globally, It is the, the language is global, the language is technical. And what you tend to find, because I sit in a lot of global spaces, I realize that most of the time what's missing is the perspective from the ground, a perspective from the regional and from the national. And for me, we need to create spaces for those perspectives to come through. We need to make sure that when we are at the table in Shamil Sheikh, that's where we were. This, this year we're going to be in Dubai for the Climate Corp. We need to make sure that the local voices and the local experiences and the perspectives are heard because then we will be able to design policies for them that also respond to their needs. Because most of the time, you're, if, if it's almost like the example I gave you the way, when I talk to women and men to understand resilience. Had I not listened to the women, I would only have designed a resilience project that responds to the men's perspectives only because they were the loudest ones in the rooms. They are the ones that would come into the meetings. But by going backwards and saying, one day I need to create a free afternoon where the women can come and also talk to me and hear their views, then I, I realize, okay, then I can have a bigger program that also has water because water is an issue, deals with conflict because conflict was an issue, deals with education because education was an issue for them. It, so then you ended up with something more holistic. It's the similar thing. When we go into these global spaces, the G20, right now, I think we're pushing for the African Union to have a seat at the G20, because we need to make sure that the local voices, the local needs, the local perspectives are there 
are hard because right now when we do, when we don't have our perspectives there, the solutions that come out do not necessarily take care of, of what we we need. So I think that is one of my things. We need to make sure that those voices are at the table, that the experiences are at the table, that their challenges are shared, but that they're also part of the solutions. Because if you're going to create a solution for a community in Nakuru where you live and you're only doing it, you're asking me, even I who live in Kenya cannot come up with a solution for the people of Nakuru because I don't live in Nakuru. So it's to make sure that the people who live in Nakuru are at the table to talk about the issues that they're facing and that the issues are receiving attention. So I think for me, if there's one thing I would like to see us really work on going forward, it is ensuring that those voices are heard. One, ensuring that the resources that we, because there's a lot of money in the world, trillions and trillions of private capital sitting somewhere can't be deployed. And you know what we keep hearing? We keep hearing, oh, you know, this too much too risky to invest in Africa, too risky to invest in that local community. They don't have the they don't have the the, the money would be would be you know stolen or, or, or this is too risky. We need to de-risk that. We need to be able to say put in place a process that allows money to flow to where it is needed most on the last mile. Maybe we build the capacity of these communities to have institutions. I don't know whether it would be local banks or whatever, but institutions that are able to receive resources and to be able to deploy these resources fast enough to make the changes that are needed, that's going to be important. So it's the voices, it's the capacity, it's the institutions, it's the money that has to reach to reach where, where it's needed. Yeah, and we need to make sure, you know, uh, of course, when I say voices, it means women, it means indigenous people, it means disability, it means youth, because those are usually the, the spaces where, where people need to do. And Alice... Thank you so much. I mean, it's really uh, such an insightful episode and I, I will go longer and longer with you because you have such a wealth of knowledge and really powerful insights. But as usual, we have to keep the time, but I'm sure we will maybe keep in the future. But I want to ask our last usual question. Many people, they are listening to us from all over the world. We have the, a listenership that is really worldwide from... In, we're touching all the continents. What is the call for action you want to give to the individuals, to the people that are listening to us, how they can make some positive steps? Good, yes. No, absolutely. Like I said, I mentioned earlier, I can't think of a bigger call to action like making nature everybody's business. You know, making sure that we all we all appreciate that um, Addressing the destruction of nature is not the business of WWF only or the business of Conservation International, World Conservation Society or other conservation organizations. That nature is the foundation, the real foundation of our existence. Our livelihoods, the air we breathe, the food we eat, um, our health. Um, and so it is our business, it is everybody's business and we all can play a very strong role in ensuring that. And I think the more we think about it and we place ourselves in that space and stop thinking that it's only the business of me who's working on it, the more otherwise we will never achieve achieve what we probably want to achieve if we don't have everybody. We need everybody. We need all hands on deck, whole of government and whole of society. So join us. Join us in this journey. And thank you, Alice. Really, it has been a pleasure. And we give this contribution also to the people Join us in this journey. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right, have a lovely day. And thanks for reaching out. And I look forward to engaging with you in future.
Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.